Hey, all you monsters out there. Time for another episode of the show. Uh, this is going to be a good one. Uh, my buddy Ed Moore stopped by, and uh, he was itching to talk about some mummy, uh, supernatural thrillers, Marvel's The Living Mummy. So we're going to cover the first two appearances of that character here in Supernatural Thrillers number 5 and 7 and uh, tackle them and uh, let you know what we think about them. So uh, stay tuned after the break and we're going to jump right into it. Welcome back to another edition of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. And in this episode, we are going to have a blast because the material we are covering is really, really good. Really fun material here. And also, I say we because I have a really good guest with me here. Returning to the show is Ed Moore. How are you, man? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, man. Thank, thank you for the kind words. Surely, surely. Absolutely. Thank you for guesting, my friend. And you and I have talked about... Uh, you know, a few different uh, horror-related things, and then uh, uh, I don't know. I can't remember how we uh, brought up this. Maybe we, maybe you brought up this material to cover for this evening. I can't remember how we got on this title here. Was it you or was it me? I can't remember. I, I, you, you might have brought up something to like narrow it down, like Marvel, maybe. Mm, and okay. um, you know, just thinking back to the the Marvel stuff that I read during the Bronze Age as I was growing up, this uh, Supernatural Thrillers has always been a title that stuck with me. And so I thought, well, I haven't heard you cover it on the show, so I'll go ahead and grab it before somebody else does. And I'm I'm upset because I didn't throw it out there first. And so, yeah, I think that's how it went. Yeah, I, this is and this is fantastic because I love this character and this first comic book. You know, we were just talking offline a bit and I just said how this uh, this first cover uh, we're going to talk about here tonight is fantastic. And it's my favorite monster, uh, you know, cover from uh, Bron Bronze Age Marvel. Yeah, yeah. This cover is um, I, I thought it was very uh, cinematic, um, you know, definitely like something that you would see like in the opening scene of, of some black and white kind of 60s horror movie. Yeah, so we're going to be covering Supernatural Thrillers number five, which is uh, the first appearance of the living mummy, uh, Encantu. And uh, I love this character quite a bit. And <laughs> this first one, the, up until this point, Supernatural Thrillers had been just, uh, you know, each issue had a different uh, character to it or a different story to it. It wasn't, you know, an ongoing with just one character, you know, they had some really, really good stuff in there for the first five issues, you know, and like I said, including this, uh, you know, the mummy here popping up in five. And then in six, it switched back again to uh, the headless horseman. And then with seven, though, it came back. And then from there on out, I guess, you know, the, the numbers were good on sales. So it uh, continued till its end with uh, this uh, awesome character, the living mummy, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that was like what fifteen issues, I think, is how far mm-hmm. it went. So, like, like over half of the entire run of the book that. Um, like you said, initially they didn't intend to, to stick one character and have it a one character book. Um, but yeah, I guess this one proved popular enough that, uh, it finished the series for as long as it would go 15 issues. I mean, that's not real long, but then kind of in that mid to late seventies kind of, uh, time period for Marvel and DC, um, there was a lot of stuff kind of in the air whenever a book started, I, I imagine, and and it it seems to be looking at the history of of books that that was a tough time to get something started and keep it going for any length of time. So this this must have this character must have really worked out to get eight or nine issues of this book. Yeah, and like I said, I I love this cover. I'll take this cover even over Tomb of Dracula, which is my favorite horror series of all time. I just think this cover here to Supernatural Thrillers number five, uh, uh, cover dated August nineteen seventy three. Uh, this is tops for me, and it's it's got a shot of our buddy, uh, the living mummy here on the front, and he's uh, carrying some chick, and uh, the cops are shooting at him, and uh, this uh, interesting uh, character, I think, in the background, we'll uh, talk about him, the uh, <clears throat> Dr. Scarab, which is a <laughs> an interesting name there. <laughs> yeah, not, not spelled the way you think, but close enough that, yeah, it, it's pronounced Scarab. Yeah, pretty on the nose, but I don't know. Maybe Gerber was just having fun with this because he's our writer on this one, and we know he was crazy. He liked to do some wild stuff, right? Oh man, yeah, he was. Uh, he he definitely used uh, his comic book writing uh, to to stretch his imagination or to to show other people what his imagination could do. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here. He's uh, karate chopping this uh, pillar, and it says he waited three thousand years to wreak the revenge of the monster and. Uh, another little uh, cover blurb says he lives, he walks, and bullets cannot stop him. And one of the greatest fear fests of all time. But even with all that going on, I really like it. It's just, it's like it has Stanley hyperbole written all over it. And I absolutely love the Living Mummy uh, logo there. What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really really catching. Uh, the 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 title of the book, Supernatural Thrillers, is is secondary to mm-hmm. featuring the living mummy and then the the font that they used and the color variation um on a, a a rack this would definitely be something that would be sticking out if you could see like this top third of the magazine um mm-hmm. it, it would definitely catch your eye oh my gosh yeah so yeah awesome this is <laughs> this is really good so all right well why don't we dive into this one here so this is all righty uh, uh script steve gerber Pencils, Rich Buckler, inks, Frank Sharamonte, colors, Petra Goldberg, and letters by Gene Simek. And then I'll just rattle off a a synopsis here from the Marvel Fandom website just uh, so we can kind of dive into it here. And it starts out with uh, two Israeli soldiers sit under the Egyptian desert moon on the Gaza Strip, contemplating their war-ravaged kingdom. Avram hears a noise from behind him, but when he turns around, he sees the visage of a powerful living mummy. Both soldiers open fire, but the bullets bounce harmlessly off the creature. It smacks Avram down with his hand, but falters as Davida stares, horrified before him. The mummy stops, turns around, and walks away. Meanwhile, at the Cairo Museum, archaeologist Alexei Scarab researches some ancient Egyptian texts. He is, his assistants, Janice and Ron, enter the room, and Alexei tells them about the era of the pharaoh Aramset. So that kind of sets the table for us. I'll just stop right there instead of uh, going you know, all through it and you know getting giving giving all the way all the good stuff away already. So that sets the table right there. But so what do you think of that uh, 
opening splash page there. That was a pretty neat opening scene there with the two soldiers. I found that interesting. Yeah, I I I know that um, men and women both serve in the Israeli army, and I guess I never thought about them necessarily serving side by side. Um, so that kind of caught me off guard, but maybe that's just because I am a doofus and I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it, it is interesting that they. I don't know that they had time to walk away from the rest of the group and, and in essence, hide behind a tank to have some some one on one time. It just it struck me as a an odd way to to start the story. Yeah, it is a little it is strange. But we, like I said, when you look at uh, who wrote this, well, it kind of is just right. par for the course. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So. But, but wow. What about page two? Page two. It, it's almost like. We get on page two what you normally get on page one of a comic. We get a huge splash page and then the uh, credits at the bottom. So what about that page? This would have been an excellent cover by itself. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. You know, you, you would have had everything that you that you needed. Uh, protagonist there, the antagonist, obviously, and a, a really uh, well-drawn, you you know that it's a mummy, uh, you know, you don't have to try to guess at what it is, so it would match the title of the story and everything. Um, nice full moon in the background and everything. Yeah, the excellent splash page would have been a really, really cool uh, cover as well. Yeah, it's it's fantastic work, you know, Rich Buckler, you know, sometimes I feel like he doesn't get the credit he deserves, but uh he, he did a great, great job here with this one. And then the next page, there's a really good you know, pan, uh, page layout here. You know, we have, you know, two kind of, you know, regular sized panels where, you know, these soldiers are shooting at the mummy and nothing's really happening. And then there's kind of a little bit of an oversized panel in the bottom left hand corner. But then, you know, three smaller uh, panels, you know, two vertical and one horizontal. And the one's a, a close up on his eyes there. That looks great. Yeah, that, that last one, because... Um... Was it earlier this page that she said, look at his eyes, he's insane, and, and they, uh, Buckler took that opportunity to show you the eyes, which I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, they didn't look necessarily insane to me, but I don't know that I've ever seen a pair of insane eyes to compare to. So yeah, He just looks kind of pissed. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of intense at the very least, you know. I mean, who wouldn't be pissed after waking up from 3,000 years ago and you, know, you don't know what's going on? I'd, I'd be pissed, too. Exactly. Yeah, dude, dude's a mummy. I mean, what you know, how, how would you be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's not going to walk around like, you know, Captain Kangaroo here laughing at everything. He's going to be pissed. <laughs> yep. But, yeah, it, it's great. So he kind of walks away from them. And it's funny because the caption box on there on page five there says, there is beauty in that face. And it, he was not seen beauty for more than a million days, nor can he nor can he bear to destroy it. So basically what they're saying is he would have gladly killed the guy, but he thought the girl was attractive. So he's like, eh, I guess I won't kill these two. <laughs> right, right, right. You can kill other things, but you can't destroy the flower, uh, which that's like a, a scene from a novel or something about a dude that's a little uh, a little off in the head and he he can't, or maybe that's the Frankenstein movie. Somewhere I've seen that play out before where, uh, when exposed to a flower, they they don't they're not as mean and aggressive as they had been with this little flower. Maybe that was the Frankenstein movie. The scene where the little girl where he met the girl, didn't she hold up a flower to him? Oh, yeah. yeah where he chucks her in the water. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. After. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love to on that same page there. 
that top right-hand panel, that one is fantastic. It's a small panel, but man, does it look good. Walking away with the walking towards mm -hmm. the uh, the full moon that's kind of hazed over with clouds over the desert, leaving footprints. Yeah, it's it, it's got everything for a a horror-y kind of panel to it. Yeah, it's great. I really, really love it. And this is when we, uh, you know, get to meet here, Doctor Scarab, who, uh, you know, he's uh, like we said, he's a, uh, you know, like a, uh, uh, oh, the 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 doctor of like, you know, like. He's one of those people that's going and, you know, digging up everything and all that jazz. Is that, so is that archaeology? Yeah, maybe like an archaeologist. Yeah. And he <laughs> he's reading something and he says, fascinating, utterly fascinating. And all of a sudden, Ron and Janice come in and, hey, Dr. Scarab, what's going on? And he's like, I believe my anthropologist friends, we have found what we sought. And she's uh, Ron says, then you finish the translation. He says, I have indeed. And it solves both our little mysteries. We've located your missing African tribe and my missing pharaoh on the very same papyrus. And he's like, well, talk, man. <laughs> I love when Ron says that to him. It's, it's interesting, too, to me that these two would have such different interests and somehow have been led to the same point. I mean, the one gentleman is looking for a missing African tribe. I wouldn't think to look in Egypt for something like that, right? I, you know, I would obviously start in Africa. Um, and the the other guy, well, he has some Egyptian mystery that he's trying to solve, but he has taken the counsel of an anthropologist that potentially specializes in ancient African tribes. And it's like, well, your you know your interest is in Egypt. Why would you be talking to someone whose interest is in Africa? That it, it just Again, Gerber taking these two things and putting them together for the story, but I'm like, uh, would they really fit together? I mean, does it work that way? Well, it's interesting. I, I do feel, I don't know if you've seen uh, the version of the Mummy uh, film from 1959 by Hammer. Uh, I, you know, I don't think so. Okay, yeah, Peter Cushing's in it, Christopher Lee's The Mummy. It's really, really good, and it really reminds me. I don't know if maybe Gerber had seen that film, because the same thing kind of happens in that film where, you know, there's this flashback, and uh, we see, uh, you know, and this is Dr. Scarab here in the comic, and he's telling Ron and Janice what's going on here, and he says about, oh, you know, there's a lost history, lost era in Egyptian history, 200-year period, which we almost knew nothing about, and it shows all these slaves, uh, you know, having to build this temple, and one of the slaves, you know, was like this really tall, big dude called Enkantu. And, you know, they made him do all the real heavy work because he was really like a big, gigantic dude. He's literally like seven feet tall. He's like kind of like the Andre the Giant of this tribe, except he's like ripped, too. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they made him carry some of the bigger blocks on his back, which looks crazy. But uh, we do see then there was the, the king here and he's getting uh, some advice from his uh, buddy here, Nephris. And Nephris says, you seem troubled, great one. And the king says, yes, Nephris, I am. And he says, about Encantu's plotting, no doubt. It should not bother you, sire. And the king says, oh, and why is this? What do the stars say? And Nephris says, that your temple shall be completed, that it will stand forever as proof of your greatness. And the king says, I see. And he says, it's true. I suppose, how could they revolt without weapons? Still, when the temple is finished, I'll put them all to death. And Nephris says, a wise decision, sire. <laughs> There you go. No problems at all. Um, let me let me take a step back a minute. Think, thinking about what I said, I I do 
to me, it's of course, but I, I do realize that Egypt is in Africa. Uh, when, when I said what I said, I was thinking of more the middle and southern portions of Africa that are more tribal. And, and that's yeah. where a lot of the individual tribes were, as opposed to the Mediterranean coast, which was predominantly Egyptian, which I don't know, I guess you could almost say was an African tribe. I don't know that I've ever heard it talked about like that. So so I do realize that Egypt is in Africa when I said, you know, the one was an African scholar and the other an Egyptian. Uh, so I, I guess they could cross lines. It's just not something that that I've seen very often when I read or or watch things having to do with either the tribal part of Africa in the south or Egypt. They always seem separate. So I just wanted to clear that up. I was thinking I sounded kind of like a goof there. So <laughs> no, yeah, I got what you meant because yeah, it does seem like, you know, as a continent, it is very much separated by regions of, you know, different, you know, uh peoples and like you said, tribes even or whatever you want to call it. Like e Egypt almost seems like uh its own separate entity when you think about the continent of Africa, but it's it's really not, I guess. It this is so yeah, this this is totally possible, I guess. It may be little far-fetched but it is possible yeah i, I just you know I, I hear a lot about uh, i've seen a lot about egypt but I, I guess i just hadn't run across them going out on on a slave like sorties and and gathering up people to bring back as slaves i i yeah. always thought that whatever slaves they had were just those places that they had conquered and you know that was mainly around the mediterranean coast it wasn't like down or i didn't think it was down into the you know the middle continent of africa there were the the more uh, tribal kind of situation were with the people so again mm -hmm. i maybe gerber knows a little bit more about egyptian history than you know than what i've run across i i certainly don't claim to be any kind of expert in anything like that and it's interesting too uh dr scarab also says you know that uh this uh, pharaoh aram set was doing a lot of exploration and it says one of the expeditions netted Egypt a nation of slaves, Africans known as the Swarilis. So I'm assuming he's riffing on Swahilis there. Um, I, I would assume, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's what he's saying. He did go down like into the more middle or southern part of the continent and, you know, basically, you know, snatched up a bunch of people, used as slaves here. And Wow, I tell you what, Rich Buckler, man, I really love that uh, pyramid he drew there, him and uh, Frank Sharamonte. Yeah. That, was, that was great, right? Yeah, for sure. That it's it's it, it's got the big giant. Um, I guess those would be hieroglyphics also on, on the one section, mm -hmm. and then almost like like he's imagining what the Sphinx is that we see now is mm -hmm. the very top, and underneath it is this big pyramid, which at this point we know is not you know the Sphinx is not on top of anything, but. <laughs> um, it's almost like he's, you know, he's trying to say, well, once upon a time, that's what the Sphinx was, was the like the capstone on top of a big pyramid. <laughs> the cherry on top of the Sunday here, right? Mm. <laughs> and then it almost looks like you can see the pyramids of Giza there in the background as well. I'm like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I was like, oh, OK, so but <laughs> they're close by there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny, too, because, again, he draws this. It's only like a third of the page, this panel. Uh, but it's really good. And like I said, these hieroglyphics, like everything has a lot of detail to it, down to the fact that like the top of this, you know, pyramid or temple or whatever, you can see little people on the top of it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, off to the side here where they're trying to like hoist up or, or whatever they're trying to do to the Sphinx to, and, and you can make them out. They're, they're all little people with arms and legs and everything. So it's, it's fully realized, but, but miniature. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, the, the guys at the top, whatever directing or whatever they're doing, I, I see now over on the, on the right hand side in the corner is the bunch. I thought it was just ropes leading off the panel, but I see now that you've got a little bunch of people there too. So yeah, he he's got little people everywhere that you definitely recognize for what they are. Yeah, it's really good. Like I said, I just really, really fantastic job here by uh, Buckler and Sharamonte. And then <laughs> like this panel at the bottom where it says, and when the last stone was in place, uh, the slaves were marched into the dungeons there to be slaughtered by Pharaoh's guards. And you see them. This is another really good job with the artwork. And then, you know, got to call out uh, Petra Goldberg as a colorist as well. You know, there's there's text on the left. And it's in the the text is in the stairs because the stairs are like black uh, because, again, it's dark. You're going down into this, you know, the, the bowels of this uh, pyramid or wherever. And uh, each of the guards is carrying a torch and only the area right around the, the torch is lit up. And then there's some blues and they're walking down. Or, again, that's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the light is colored. And then where the light doesn't fall, it's the blues and purples and, uh, you know, de- denoting shades or darkness and yeah it's it's the the source for lighting was very much taken into account when when the panel was drawn for sure yep yep well and there's one thing going on here so they did mention it a little tiny mention earlier that uh and Kantu was kind of uh, uh he's saying to all the other slaves like hey uh we're gonna get out of this mess i'm gonna get i'm gonna lead you out of here we're gonna get out from under the thumb of this uh pharaoh guy so <laughs> When they lead them down there to execute them, this is when the, the slaves revolted and they start <laughs> chucking some of these guys off the side of the stairs. I don't know if there's like a bottomless pit there or what, but it's just off into this darkness and and Kantu's choking a guy and grabs his like sword and he's gonna stab him. And you know, they basically start revolting against this guy, and then wow, they come up to the surface and the Pharaoh says, Stop, I command you to surrender. Your lives will be spared. And then Kantu says, Say your prayers to Osiris. Our lives aren't yours to spare, Pharaoh, as of now. And uh, the bottom panel there on page 10, he has this really pissed off look on his face. And he says, fool, you dare threaten my life? The stars say I cannot be beaten, that you must fail. And he goes, and Kantu, then the stars are wrong, oh great one, and you'll die to prove it. And he throws this spear right into the guy's chest. It's really gross. Yep, a, a full story above him, and he hits him center mass with that spear. That, that That's not a bad throw. Yeah, and then he says, you and your high priest. And we do see Nephris in the background of that panel standing there. And all of a sudden it says, boldly the black king barged inside. And he says, I've longed for this moment, Nephris, and he's going to kill Nephris now. But uh, top of page 11 there, that panel, we see him uh, using some uh, trickery and some science here, right, to stop Inkantu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some yeah, some kind of Egyptian mix of the two, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, then I presume you intend to kill me. And Inkantu says, as no man has been ever killed before, slowly, painfully, you'll suffer as my people have suffered. And there's a little caption box that says, but even as Inkantu spoke, Nephris dipped his fingers in a strange potion and with a flick of his wrist sprinkled several drops on the black man's face. And then he says, "What what's happening to me? And he's almost like, you know, like paralyzed, like he's been, uh, I, don't, I don't know how, you, how to describe it, but whatever this potion is, it actually has him standing there like a statue that he can't even move, right? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, completely paralyzed, like a like yeah, like a stone statue, like you said. Yeah, so basically he's screwed. So this Nefris says, you're paralyzed, my friend. And a man who cannot move, cannot lead, much less kill. Guards. And he calls the guards in and they carry him off. And then, holy crap, how about this panel at the bottom there? They have him uh, on this, like, uh, I want to say a cross, but it's almost just like an X. And they have him tied right. down to it. And Nefris says, and bring me the red fluid vial. Attach the hoses and tubes so, you know, something's not going to go well here for our buddy. And then, man, on page 12, it's uh, really it's on. They're really uh, going to do a number on him. Yeah, the uh, yeah, the, the priest, they've got him tied down and you can see that he's got like these tubes that are anchored and inserted into him. And, and the the not the Pharaoh, but the priest uh, is holding this red flask over him uh, with whatever this fluid is going to is what whatever he's going to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. He basically says it's this fluid is going to replace your blood and he goes but have no fear you won't die quite the opposite you'll live on forever so basically they're going to like kind of embalm this guy and make him be alive forever stuck uh, bandaged all up in uh, a coffin here so or i guess a sarcophagus you would call it over there so that's that's uh, what happens uh, back in the day but we've already seen that you know he's uh, he's come back in our time but <laughs> one little last note on nephris here uh, you know, he uh, he's like, haha, I'm going to be in charge now because I was basically the high priest. And, you know, with uh, Aram Set dead without a son, I will rule over all Egypt. And <laughs> I don't know, I guess it's uh, just uh, maybe uh, good or bad timing, depending on which uh, side of the fence you're on here. Then this crazy like earthquake uh, happens and basically kills a lot of the uh, Egyptians and the ones that didn't get killed just take off and run away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Was that like just something that happened, or, or was Gerber trying to tell us that that was the gods that were displeased, or you know what? It, it just happened, and we, we didn't really get a whole lot of uh, explanation other than it happened as to to what it was. I will just chalk it up to bad luck for uh, Nephris here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His his reign was very short. <laughs> Yeah. So back to the present and uh, Ron and Janice are there talking to Dr. Scarab and, you know, they're like, oh, this is a fairy tale, not history. And <laughs> Ron, it sounds like an old B movie plot. And uh, mm. uh, Scarab says, perhaps, but it does explain those artifacts you found in Southern Africa, pottery bearing ancient Egyptian symbolism. So I guess that's what really happened there. You know, like it said earlier, he must have went on an expedition to Southern Africa to uh, snatch up and uh, capture those people and enslave them. Yeah, I guess so. I guess specifically, that's what they must have been looking for, was people to take back as slaves. Mm-hmm. And then Scarab, this is like literally my favorite scene with him. He says, and for me, it explains a great deal more. You see, I believe Nephris was my ancestor. And Ron says, you're what? Are you serious? Nobody can trace his lineage back that far. And here's uh, uh, Scarab's response. I can, through a line of Egyptian scientists and astrologers. <laughs> mm -hmm. okay all right that's all it takes huh and he goes but my yeah interest, that's right yeah my interest goes beyond genealogy oh yes far beyond suppose it's all true suppose nephris had learned the secret of immortality and Kantu might still be buried out there alive in what we call suspended animation and i love how he has a pipe uh by the way in this scene <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and then ron doc you've been working too hard so they're just you know ron and janice are like dude you're you're flipping out here there's no way and then of course we switch back to uh, you know the streets of cairo 
and our buddy uh, Encantu is uh, just starting to walk through the streets. And of course, at this point, he doesn't speak. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in the next issue we're going to cover, but he does not speak here. He just uh, kind of wanders around and there's not even thought bubbles, just some captions by Gerber saying about how he's like kind of confused about where he is and what's going on. But, you know, again, at no point does he speak or even have a thought bubble uh, until there's one tiny little scene up here where he does. But then that's it. But he runs into a car and smashes the crap out of the car. And then I guess it, he just starts rampaging around Cairo and it gets onto the TV. And then that's when uh, Ron and Janice and Dr. Scarab kind of find out what's going on. Yeah, they they, they kind of see the things that they've been, you know, talking about, maybe dreaming about, you know, if, if we ever find a mummy or something like that. Well, now now they see that it's happening because right here on the TV screen is the coverage of some mummy rampaging somewhere. Um, <laughs> also want to point out, I wonder how long it took this mummy to walk from the deserts of Egypt, or not Egypt, of deserts of Israel, right, to Cairo, Egypt. Well, I think it actually said in one of the caption boxes that those, uh, yeah, the, the caption box says the Gaza Strip, Israeli-occupied Egypt in 1973. So oh, okay, that's where it was. Okay, it was in the Gaza. Okay. Yeah, I'm assuming, yeah, that's where they had troops or whatever at that time. And now, <laughs> and that's where he was. So I'm not sure on the logistics of that one either. We know, uh, you know, there are people out there that can cover a lot of distance without walking very fast. I mean, a mummy, uh Jason Voorhees, there are certain people that you can run as fast as you can, but they can just walk at their normal pace and you're toast, right? Yep. Uh, Conan, he can like run for days. So, you know, that's, yeah. So, yeah. So I guess some people are just blessed with stuff like that. And, and us, us normal humans, we, we just, we're out of luck. <laughs> yeah. I do like how some of these people that uh, Encantu uh, sees downtown here as he's creeping around Cairo, I don't know if they attacked him or anything, but he just picks a couple of them up and chucks one just, of them through a window. <laughs> right. Yeah. He he doesn't want them wherever they were. He wants them over there. So he throws them over there. Yeah, literally. He chucks a guy that smashes into two other guys and goes through a plate glass window. And there's some pretty jagged edge there. I think uh, one or two of those guys might be dead. Uh, yeah. At this point, I, I would think so. And, and, you know, I bet those people weren't doing anything aggressive to him. I bet they were trying to get away or were just. Yeah. Uh, 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 frightened they were frozen you know in fright or something like that but yeah he's he's rather aggressively telling them that he doesn't want them around him and it looks like this is like early evening so these people probably just you know were forced to work some overtime at the office just minding their own business and now they got chucked through a plate glass yeah window. they're on their way home man they yeah. you know they they want no no part of nothing they just want to get home get some dinner but uh, Encanto is like no here catch this hold, hold my person <laughs> He says, yeah, one minute you and your buddies are like, it's Miller time. And the next minute you're getting chucked through a plate glass yeah. window and killed. No doubt, man. <laughs> in, in downtown Cairo, it's like that stuff never happened. This this is the kind of stuff that happens in Japan, right? We see it all the time when Godzilla is <laughs> rampaging. It doesn't happen here in Cairo. Well, mm -hmm. until this night. Yeah. And I love how uh, Buckler in that panel uh, decided to draw a sexy lady's leg there, too, as she's bolting out of the panel. <laughs> right. She got away. You, you, can't, you can't hurt the women. So she she got away here. Yeah. And Dr. Scarab, you know, he runs in to tell Ron and Janice, hey, man, there's this uh, mummy running around. It's got to be him. Let's go check it out. Well, I love to. Oh, I forgot to mention Dr. Scarab. 
Not only does he have a uh, typical 1970s like uh, button-down shirt open with his chest hairs hanging out, he has a pendant on his chest as well. And what is that pendant? Oh, it is a scarab. <laughs> <laughs> so not only is he named Dr. Scarab, he wears a scarab. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not to put too fine a point <laughs> on who he is, but yeah, that's, that's his, uh, his jewelry he's wearing. That's fantastic. So yeah, now and then it, it doesn't say... Almost like he, the, the mummy is walking around like, uh, almost like he, he doesn't know where he is, where to go, what to do. But at some point it says he has an impulse and it has brought him here. And that same impulse bids that he enter. So he does. So he rips the door right off the hinges to, I think it's Nefers, uh, I shouldn't, I'm saying Nefers, Scarab's apartment or mm -hmm. office or whatever. Or, yeah, yeah, something. And he comes blasting in and he says, here's like pretty much the only one of the only panels where he speaks. He says, Nephris. And he's looking around. And OK, Scarab did say he thinks he's a descendant of that Nephris. So we're kind of thinking that's that's going to be the way it is here. But, <laughs> yeah, the mummy's kind of like needs a power nap here, I guess, because he just yeah. falls over and he wants to go to sleep. Right. <laughs> yeah. Apparently he can't keep going for days. He, he has to take a rest. Um, the next panel tells us that um, Scarab and his retinue, before they return, which they were in his like office before mm -hmm. they left. So I guess that's where the mummy ends up is breaking into their office. Yeah, it almost looks like there's like a, a desk and a phone and a couch and stuff like that. Like almost you'd see like, you know, in a waiting room or something like that. So maybe that's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah so he, I... he, he falls completely over. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, they they walk in and Ron says, he's been here. Who else could have done this? But why? Search the place. See if he took anything. So right away, he's a thief. Like what? And right. Janice, yeah. All the mummies, yeah. They, they break in and they steal. <laughs> yeah, they're all kleptos. <laughs> and Janice says, oh, Ron, Dr. Scarab, look. And I, I for a second, I thought, did Luke Cage like come into this uh, for this scene or what? Ron, <laughs> Ron says, Christmas. Look at him. He must be eight feet tall. Mm. <laughs> I love it. And Janice says, I don't understand. Is he dead? Did he come here to die? And Scarab says, I tend to doubt that, my dear. Ron, see if he's breathing. And Ron goes over to him and checks to see if he's breathing. And he says, I think he's felt fast asleep. And here's something I don't get. So you're Dr. Scarab. You're this educated guy. You, you know, this would be the, the scientific find of a lifetime for you. And he's like, He's far too dangerous. We can't let him here alive. And he goes and gets a pistol. What? Right. right. Yeah. This this thing is too dangerous, so we must kill it. Yeah, that was the only part of this comic. I was like, Gerber, you lost me here, buddy. Like that. That makes absolutely no sense for him to like think we got to kill him. And he does. He goes and gets a pistol and starts shooting the mummy. And the mummy turns around and says, Nephris, save me. And then <laughs> Scarab. Allah, have mercy. It wants me to cure it. And he says it again. Nephris saved me. And uh, <laughs> he's still packing his pistol there, uh, Dr. Scarab. And he tells Ron and Janice to run because the mummy starts trying to get up again. And, you know, basically now it's just a, a very quick uh, descent into craziness here where, you know, they're trying to run away from the mummy because they think he's going to try to kill them, even though he said he just wanted help. And them running away and the mummy chasing after them. And then the cops show up. And that's that's pretty much uh when it all goes downhill, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we, we do have that, that scene. Um, where is it here? Where we, 
Okay, so so far the mummy has spoken just a few words, but he can speak. So so mm -hmm. we know that. Um, when the police arrive, they try to gas him with tear gas, and his eyes get watery, and he cries. So we, mm -hmm. we know that his eyeballs work, too. Um, mm -hmm. it, of everything that could happen, it, it struck me as, as kind of different that Gerber wanted to show that the mummy could cry. Um, essentially, that, that's mm -hmm. what that's for. Um, not out of any kind of feelings or anything like that, but just physiologically well the mummy is yeah. still capable of crying and i'm like well all the of all the things that you want to show that you know some amount of humanity still exists which i assume is what he's trying to get at mm -hmm. why have it cry when the police throw tear gas at it that, it was just an odd choice i thought yeah it's interesting and it almost looks like you know it, it, it's not saying this but it almost has this look on its face like you know, why are you doing this to me and then uh, there's like 20 cops there and they just start shooting at him like crazy. And I do love this panel uh, where he rips a telephone pole, right? Like he snaps it right off at the base and starts like, you know, swinging around. He's going to kill some people with it. <laughs> yep. Yep. But they, um, some, somehow there's water on the street already. I guess it's rained or, you know, something's happened, whatever. And the, the electricity and the water uh, and mummy, unfortunately do not mix well. Yeah. He gets zapped and that's on the very last page there. That's a really good panel, too, where he's getting electrocuted. It's like, you know, the, the electricity coursing through him, and he's all in this, like, contorted shape. That's a really good one there, too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very, no pun intended. Or I guess if you want to, pun intended. Very powerful panel. <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> he hits the ground, and the fuzz says, look, he's folding up like a cardboard doll. We've got him. And <laughs> I'm a little hazy on this, too. Now, I guess... No, I don't know a lot about uh, what goes on in Egypt as far as the cops and the laws and this and that. But Scarab says, Officer, wait, I'm Dr. Scarab, the archaeologist, as if he's world famous and everyone must know him, I guess. I've right. studied the, I've studied this creature. I realize this sounds impossible, but he may not be dead. And the cop says, what? But look at him. He's too hot, even to touch. Scarab says, I know, but you mustn't think of him as human. I beg you, give him to me for study before you dispose of him. And then the very last panel, the caption box says, dumbly, the officer nods. <laughs> what? Maybe being a descendant of Nephris, he has some kind of power. And this is kind of an allusion to the fact that he, he gave the, the cop some kind of whammy. Oh, man. I don't know. That's hilarious. But, you know, there he lays dead. You know, three cops are there, Ron, Janice, and Scarab. And it says, as he watches the mummy's smoldering form and prays it will never live again. You know, this is you know, the cop. So so that was it for this one. So this is really good. This is such a fun, you know, comic book. It's like, you know, it's like a, you want to just sit down and watch a fun popcorn movie. That's how right. this uh, comic was for me. How about you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it definitely has the feel of yet another one-off for this book. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't definitive. I mean, of course, you didn't see the body you know, whatever, disappear or explode or whatever. But everybody is saying the body is dead. And so you're like, okay, well, in, in its rampage, unfortunately, the mummy died. So that's the the last we'll see of the mummy, just like all the other issues before this have been one off for that character. So, you know, next issue will move on with another one off kind of character. So this this right now has the feel of everything that's come before it as far as this this particular book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does feel like a one and done, like you said. Even though there's there's the mummy laying there, not 
it totally, uh, you know, he's just laying there. He could come back from this, obviously. And, and right. he does. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. So, all right. Well, if you're ready to uh, hop on, we can go to, we're going to jump to Supernatural Thrillers number seven, which is the next appearance of The Living Mummy. Back from the Tomb is the name of this one. And cover credits, you know, depending on where you're looking, some are saying John Romita pencils and inks. Some say pencils Ron Wilson, John Romita inks. I'm not sure. Either way, it looks fantastic, you know, because I have seen some Ron Wilson covers that did look Romita-ish to me, whether mm-hmm. or not it was because Romita inked those as well, or he was kind of aping his style, or his style just is very similar to Romita's. I'm not sure, but what do you think of this cover here, this one? I like it, but honestly, not as much as I like the cover for issue five. Um it still it, it it definitely does the job. Um you've got the mummy coming out of a something and by the looks of it maybe it's a museum it looks like so he was in the museum and he's busting out by breaking the doors out towards the um we'll say the street, you know, towards the outside of the building. And you've got a couple witnesses here. Uh we'll find out who the witnesses are uh, on in the story a little bit. So uh still very very dynamic, very catchy. Uh, that very well, not exactly the same kind of logo, is it? I think they changed colors are the... different. Yeah, yeah, the colors yeah. are different. Yeah, uh, it's still though a, a nice bright logo compared to potentially some of the other things that were that were on the shelves at that time. So it would still jump out. But even if the logo didn't work, over here on the left hand side where the wolf was in issue five, they have a headshot of the mummy for issue seven, and it is freaky looking. Yes, it is really cool. And right behind, right underneath it, it says, by popular demand, now in his own Sinister series. So, you know, like we said, obviously it's, a, you know, they had five come out and the numbers probably looked pretty good that they thought, hey, rather than keep trying to scrounge something for, you know, how many more issues, every issue being another character, its own character, hey, let's roll with it. The people said they thought the mummy was great. Let's, you know, hopefully we'll see him again. So, they started, you know, rolling with the, the mummy from, like we said, here on out. And there's not um, a, uh, in this book here, there's not a letters page, I don't think. But I'm assuming maybe come issue eight or nine at the latest, there'd be a letters page where it would say, you know, people are clamoring for, you know, the return of the mummy. Hopefully, yes, yeah, since it's the same character and, and people will will recognize that they're talking about that. I could see where on the the one-offs like that, it would be kind of hard to print letters three and four issues later because if the people reading that book hadn't read the previous book, they wouldn't understand any of the references in the letters either. So it'd be a little little more difficult to do. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I like this cover quite a bit. I do like the color scheme better on the on five where the letters are actually in white and there's like a little bit of speckles of black uh, underneath uh, at the bottom of the letters. And then the background was blue. And then all the letters are, uh, I don't know what the uh, process you call that, but they're almost like the outside traced in like a red where mm-hmm. this one, it says the living and that's in yellow and mummy is in like orange with again, the, like the blacks at the bottom there, but the background's white. So I don't care for that quite as much, but it still looks really cool. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely is going to stand out with a lot of the other, uh, at least Marvel books that are on the market right now. 
Yeah, and then there's a right there. It says back from the tomb, and I love how they wrote tomb there. It's all, you know, like creepy kind of lettering. But yeah, there's a guy and a lady here running away from the doors being smashed open by the mummy, and the guy has a, a speech bubble, and he exclaims, "Look out! Door won't stop him. Chains won't hold him." And I'm thinking, how do you know chains won't hold him, pal? I, yeah, yeah, good. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, ratchet up the the intensity, I guess. He's just, sure. Yeah, and then he's out for vengeance on the whole world. Again, how do you know? Did he, did he tell you that or what? D- dude's just breaking down some doors and, and he's coming to all these conclusions. Yeah. I mean, I've come out flying out of some doors in my day. Nobody ever said that about me. I don't know. No, yeah, I, I don't think so either. I, I certainly hope that nobody was worried I was going to take <laughs> over the world from some of the places I was running from. Yeah, for sure. I mean, maybe I didn't have bandages. That was my problem. Oh, there you go. That that could have been the key. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Supernatural Thrillers number seven, cover date of June 1974. And uh, this is, uh, again, Steve Gerber's script. Now, this one's a little bit shorter in page count. And I'm assuming that was either A, because Gerber was writing 100 things right at this moment. He was a workhorse around the 72, 73, 74, 75. He was writing a crap load of stuff for Marvel. Or this was a last minute. Hey, we got the numbers in from the mummy sales from Supernatural Thrillers 5, and they were great. Steve, bang out another mummy story so we don't have to think of something else. Right, yeah. I think the the, the practical side of me would think what your initial thoughts were, but the more romantic part of me would be, no, that second possibility is what happened. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Roy Thomas, isn't Roy Thomas still alive? He, he's the, he's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So we, you know, ultimately somebody may still be able to ask him what happened. I, I don't know how many of the other people involved are uh, are deceased. We certainly know Steve Gerber is no longer with us. Yeah, Val Mayerick's still around. He's somebody that I'm going to be pestering very soon to see if he will come on my show and talk to me about comics. Because, oh, cool beans. Okay. Yeah, I, I love this stuff that he did. And then he also did a lot of the Monster of Frankenstein issues, mm-hmm. uh, especially towards the end of the run. And then... Even better than that, I feel, is his work in black and white magazines for Marvel. He did. There was an ongoing story of the monster of Frankenstein in, uh, I think it was Monsters Unleashed, if I'm not mistaken, that black okay. and white magazine. Yeah, and then he did some, you know, one-off stories, really cool horror stories here and there, and like vampire tales and stuff like that. So, yeah, hoping to uh, talk to him one day. Yeah, that that's cool. His when whenever I see his name, this era. Uh, from Marvel, the the 70s monster comics are always what comes to mind when I see him as an artist somewhere. Yeah, I feel he like he gets one of those guys that gets lost in the mix. But yeah, really, mm-hmm. really good artist, really good artist. So yeah, he was uh, the artist, uh, pencils and inks. It's it's wholesale, all him. Colors, Linda Lessman, and letters by John Costanza. So uh, I'll just bounce right into a quick little synopsis for this one. It's uh, the living mummy awakens inside a crate in a museum in New York. He bursts free of his confines and begins wandering around the corridors. A security guard named Jones comes up on him and flees in terror. He telephones the police, as well as the museum's curator, Dr. Carol Harter. Harter arrives at the museum along with Alexi Scarab, but the mummy is long gone. Scarab tells Harter the history of Encantu and his recent resurrection and rampage in Cairo. The mummy, meanwhile, wanders the streets of New York, rests briefly in Central Park until he finds two young thugs hassling a woman. The mummy approaches him, but the thugs, as well as the woman, flee in terror. And Kantu has no idea why they are so scared of him. The two punks run into a police officer and explain what they had just seen. The officer then radios the incident into headquarters and drives on to investigate. 
Several squad cars converge on the scene and open fire on the mummy. Several bullets strike a nearby vehicle, causing it to explode. In the midst of the explosion, the mummy takes the opportunity to escape down a back alley. So uh, that was a, 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 the long version here, because uh, I'll be honest, I really like this issue as well, especially from an artistic point of view. But it does kind of uh, uh, scream to me that it was uh, uh, done it, under some duress, like it, maybe Gerber was in a hurry here. Because, again, it's beautiful. It's 15 page story, which, you know, obviously is not a full uh, uh, comic, but uh, it does seem like there's a lot going on, but nothing really happens, if you know what I mean. Right. And then also put that rehash on top of it of basically what two thirds of issue five rehashed in in a much shorter period of, of pages. But, yeah, it, it, I, I guess and, and all of that would lead one to believe that this was a very last minute kind of we've got to get something out now that we know it's going to work kind of thing rather mm-hmm. than something that they had the time to sit around and plot and put together. So I, I guess that that the the way everything is set up and that it's only a partial of the book leans towards that more uh, practical, we need to get something out now while the iron is hot, in essence. So Yeah. Yep, right there with you. So, yeah, basically 25% of this book, actually more than 25% of this book, is recap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and again, it's... I love how it looks. It looks fantastic. And uh, not to uh, say anything bad about Rich Buckler and Frank Sciaramonte in issue five, they did a fantastic job. I think Val Mayrick, though, is a little more suited for this kind of story. So his uh, artist rendering of the recap that uh, Scarab talks about, I think, is even better. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with you. It, it definitely his style lends more to that horrory kind of feel mm-hmm. m- much more than Buckler's maybe more. Um, and, and this isn't meant in a bad way or a, a pejorative, but Rich Buckler's more like cartoony or open kind of style. This is a very hatchy, scratchy, darkened kind of version. And being able to see Encanto's origin this way compared to the previous way, I definitely appreciate this uh, artwork telling that story better than I did uh, that in issue five. Yeah, like we said, not to uh, uh, crap on Rich Buckler. Oh, yeah, no, I think no, he was. Yeah, he was a really good artist. I think he was more suited for superheroes than the horror genre, though. Where yes. I think Val Mayrick was more suited for horror genre and stuff like that than he would have been the superhero genre. Just, you know, people's talents obviously lie, you know, I mean, there are people that could try anything, but, you know, probably at the same level, like the Kirby's of the world or John Buscemba, he could draw a superhero story just as he could a Conan story. But um, a lot of artists, one genre more than another, uh, really suited their, uh, you know, their abilities, I think. And like I said, Val Mayrick here, I mean, just on this opening page here, it's, a, it's only four panels, uh, three uh, smaller vertical panels at the top, and the one just shows a crate in this museum, and then the second one is the mummy's hand blasting out of it, and then the third one is just this, like, looks like an explosion of him, like, smashing the crap out of this, uh, you know, crate that he's in, and then there he stands uh, in the museum for, like, two-thirds of the page. What do you think of that? That, that drawing of the mummy just can't be beaten. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is a, that is a, it's imposing it's it's scary looking. Uh, the the perspective makes it look huge. Although we already know from the first story that he was what like seven foot tall or eight foot tall, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, 
and and then just to add flavor you've got the whole sides of the panel and the background that in essence this room that he's in is um, on three sides of him and, and we as the audience our perspective is the fourth side of the room but the other three sides of the room the 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 ambiance that that is giving is just really spooky mysterious you know it's late at night and it's dark and in the middle of this room is this huge mummy that is just popped out of this um crate that it just trashed in in standing up out of very very dynamic but dark kind of panel yeah and i love how there's a little caption to the bottom right hand corner there and it's basically a caption that's in a vase there (laughs) i love when they do that yeah, yeah, it's taken some part of the art, but then used it as uh, part of the narration. Um, something came to mind here. Have you seen the cartoon Primal by Jendi Tar- Tartakovsky? I don't think I have. I know that name, though, because isn't that the person that did like Ren and Stimpy and stuff like that? He did Dexter. Uh, comes oh, to yeah, mind Dexter's immediately. Laboratory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He he might have done some others, but he did. Um, there's two seasons, and um, by by the way that the second season ends, I, I'm pretty sure that's going to be all that he's going to be able to do. But there were two seasons of ten episodes. They run about twenty to twenty five minutes each, and it's about a um, a, a Neanderthal hmm. and the adventures that he gets into. But it is using that. Um, Dexter's type artwork that that Jindy does, although he quickly moves on to directing and doesn't, I don't think, do as much of the artwork, although they they stay in that style for both seasons. Um, What came to mind is in the second season, there is a character in there that is a captured king of a captured tribe. The the whole tribe was captured by the the bad guy, Mm. and the king he put into service. The king was king because he was the largest of the tribe and the uh, motif around the characters lends me to believe that it is supposed to be uh, an African uh, tribe that was captured and and their king, who was the biggest person, became a member of the bad guy's army because he was so big and strong and could withstand so much and and could be so vicious on command and all that kind of stuff. But Mm. just the large king African tribe matching up between what Jandy did with that season of Primal and this character just kind of merged in in like a car crash in my head as I was looking at this panel. So Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. I, I have no idea if there's a connection. I don't know if... Jendi grew up and, and read these books and that, yeah, I don't know, but that's, that's a lot of little things that are the same between the two for there not to be any connection. Um, but it's possible. Yeah, that's cool. And I love Dexter's laboratory, by the way. Great show. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I did too. <laughs> Hilarious show, but <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. So how about page two here? I love how, of course, you know, if you're this mummy that's been around for 3000 years and you awaken it's one thing if you awaken and you're in a desert somewhere and then in Cairo running around and you see cars and stuff like that. Well, he awakens here in this museum and he has all these things, these you know Egyptian things around him. So, of course, he's just like, hmm, what's going on here? But it doesn't take long for him to get so pissed off that he just wants to get out of the place. So he comes over, you know, a la the front cover here to a set of doors. 
And wow, he smashes the living crap out of them. I love that panel. What about that? Describe that one. Um, yeah, it's it's almost almost like the like the you're you're looking at it almost like from the opposite side of the uh, front cover. But he he's walked up to these what we see are double doors, and this time when he smashes them, well, first of all, there's not uh, any audience uh, down. Uh, on street level watching he he is just walking from one room to another in the museum but when he hits the doors they don't just get knocked off the hinges and break in into like a couple pieces like on the front cover no this these are big pieces and small pieces and it shatters and it shatters in different ways and then around him and and kind of behind him is like various shades of color of uh, orangish and reddish and yellow uh, like like a an, an energy nimbus or a, like a, a force nimbus from where he has hit the doors uh crushing them out and you can see on his hands and his arms some of his bandages are kind of flailing as they've broken loose and a very very powerful dynamic uh panel here yeah this the, the whole artwork in this issue i'm just gonna say Again, not to say it was better than five or anything like that. It's just it to me is like off the chain. Good. Like it, that panel, it's almost like there's an explosion, you know, when he hits these doors. Mm -hmm. He's so powerful. It looks fantastic. And then the next panel uh, at the bottom there, we see a you know, the uh, security guard like the night watchman. He heard this, obviously, and comes running around the corner and says, all right, I know you're there. Come out. No tricks. And you see just part of the mummy's shoulder and his face. And wow, does that look menacing there. And right to the next page. And then there's a, two small panels. And it's a close-up on this night watchman. And he says, basically, no tricks or I'll shoot. Oh, no, no. And wow, look at those two panels. They are so good. They're just tiny little panels. Like there could be 15 or 20 of these size panels on this page, which you would think there wouldn't be much detail in them. But the detail on the cop's face, or I shouldn't say cop, the night watchman, it almost reminds me of Bernie Wrights in there. Yes, uh, very much so. Which uh, this weekend I got a, a Kickstarter book full of his art uh, that, oh, that they yeah. kickstarted. And uh, I, I meant to look through that, but I got involved in some other things. But yeah, I got a whole big book of uh, Wrights and art in the mail this weekend. So I was, uh, anyways, um, very lending itself almost to, I think, not even needing full color i can only imagine what this would have looked like in just black and white these two panels mm, wow yeah and like i said I, a lot of what i know of val merrick uh, his art is black and white from the magazine work and it's just it's incredible he's right. again he's super underappreciated guy yeah it, it definitely lends itself to black and white psychological kind of mess with your head stories whether you want that to be uh, intense or horror or some kind of adventure or you know but yeah billy just between you and me man i have wanted for a long time to do a podcast just about those marvel black and white mags well it's it's a good thing you said that because i have a ton of them so we'll we'll, we'll have to talk after oh this. man yeah i have <laughs> I, I, the conan kind of slants things because there's so much of the conan so i i always kind of think of well you know just pull those out not because they're bad but just focus on those marvel black and white 
horror mags from the early to mid 70s man that would just that would be so much fun to read and talk about and anyways val merrick uh these two panels like you said they're small so you think well you would lose some uh some distinctness some you know but everything is there this mummy's face actually kind of puts me in mind of the old was it boris karloff wolfman face Oh, could be, yeah, yeah. With the with the one eye open and the other kind of not open, kind of. Oh, yeah. the mummy, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the mummy, the way the mummy is drawn, yep. it brings. That's how that his mummy mind. was. Yep, yep. Yes. You're right on, spot on with that. That's exactly how uh, he portrayed that one in the uh, the 1932 Universal version. Yep. Yes, yes, the Universal mummy. Yeah, so that it, that immediately came to mind when I saw that panel, and I'm like, oh, he has to have seen that movie, and that's what. That's what this is, because it, it just looks too similar. And I love how the Night Watchman it does have a gun, and he does shoot uh, at the mummy here, but he the mummy, of course, isn't affected by it, and it just grabs him by the shirt, and he says, don't kill me, please, don't kill me. And he just very, well, flippantly flips the Night Watchman over yep. his shoulder like he's a bag of potatoes. Just It's a nonchalant whoop. over the shoulder. Yep, that's what it is. <laughs> it's great. And the Night Watchman thinks to himself, Lord only knows what that thing is. And maybe even he don't know, but it's alive. I heard it breathing, and it's dangerous and strong as an ox. <laughs> he goes into his office, and uh, you know he's going to call the cops to uh, come and take care of this guy. And you know that's when uh, we see Doctor Scarab is not in Cairo anymore, and he's back in the states here. And we also uh, it does there is one uh, caption box. I can't remember where it is now. That they do say there's a time frame here that it's been uh, you know a few months but less than a year since supernatural thrillers number five, where uh, we saw the mummy get electrocuted and, you know, the cop over in Cairo said, sure, you can have the, uh, uh, the, the corpse here, Dr. Scarab. So between then and now is like not quite a year, but you know, quite a few months uh, afterwards. And he, I guess, you know, I don't know if he uh, normally works in the States here, but he was over in Cairo on a dig or something, but he's, he's over here now. Yeah, yeah. Connecting the two is maybe a little difficult, you know, to explain, well, what he said then and what he's doing now. But OK, well, again, it's it's Gerber for, for the greater good of the story. We'll we'll let it ride and we'll just go along with it. Yeah. So I'm glad they at least, you know, tried to, uh, you know, connect the dots a little bit here. But, you know, they they walk around and see how the museums, you know, some of it's smashed to pieces here and. Then Scarab goes on to tell uh, the guy at the museum here what's going on. And this is when we get the, uh, like I said, it's like four pages of uh, recap. So like we said, when you think about it, it's 15 page story between the recap and this initial scene of him just busting out of the muse the crate and then out of the museum. That's literally half the comic right there. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we like you said, you know, we talked earlier, these scenes of, you know, what happened in the first one when they did that flashback. I think some of these scenes look even better. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's crazy good. Crazy good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and some of them are even, you, you can tell that Merrick read that other issue because mm -hmm. the the scene is more than just essentially the scene. It's, it's the same thing, only maybe from a different angle, a mm -hmm. little higher, maybe closer to the ground. or so. Some of the scenes are things that we did not see. But a lot of these are just different representations of the same panel, almost like um, also, I guess, he was given the original script for issue five. 
Mm -hmm. And just like, you know, any other artist, they just said, now take, you know, the script from this page to this page and, and draw that the way that you want to. And so given the way Gerber wrote it, most of the interpretation would be the same, very similar at the least. And then those places where Merrick maybe had a little bit more flexibility as how to interpret it. That's where the scene really changes to uh, a different character's perspective or maybe something like that. But the the similarities are, are so close that either Merrick did it by the panel or he had to have had the script and, and they just said, you know, we just want you to redo the script from these pages. Um, go go at it. And, and that's what we got this issue. Yeah, he took that flashback scene and then uh, also the ensuing uh, scene from five and, you know, made it his own here. And, and to Gerber's credit, you know, he didn't just, you know, write the same things down for the caption boxes. It's, you know, it, it's it's the same kind of uh, meaning, but different words. So it's not like he lifted anything. He just, uh, like we right. said, he's probably under the gun here. So. He was like, hey, let's just do that. And, you know, they said to Val Mayer, okay, uh, here's issue five. Can you kind of write four page or draw four pages of the same thing just in your own way? Right. Yeah. You have this much space to fill. Go ahead and fill this. And now I hear all the time about the Marvel method. Wasn't the Marvel method the art first and then somebody came after and with the art there in front of them wrote the narration and the um Word balloons. I think as Lee started to back away from uh, writing, that went out the door because okay. I know, okay. yeah, I know for a fact. Once uh, Doctor Strange, uh, that title got started in the uh, was it nineteen early nineteen seventies. There, I know. It, just just for one example, I know Gene Colan. He usually would work with a script from a writer. He didn't. Okay. You know, Okay. Yeah, he didn't he didn't plot and think. I think that was mostly like Lee Kirby, Lee Ditko, and then okay. once it started it started to go away from there like, you know, guys like Roy Thomas started to be more prominent and Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, Jerry Conway. Right. I think they were pretty much plotting and writing and then the artist was doing their thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I so just, by this time, yeah, I think that's yeah. how it was working. Yeah, well, I was just wondering if this was, you know, because like you said Gerber didn't use the same words and so I wondered if he got this artwork back and then wrote the narration captions based on what Merrick had drawn. Yeah. Yeah. I think he probably, you know, uh, like we said, between having the issue and then a a pretty good idea of what Gerber was uh, doing in this one, he probably had a pretty good idea of what was going on. But Mm -hmm. yeah, like we said, he made the artwork all his own. Like I love that page. It's the last page of recap where, you know, we see, you know, uh, the, there's three panels at the top and then a the, uh, real big panel at the uh, bottom where, you know, it just recaps basically what happened uh, in those last moments where, you know, Ron, Janice, and Dr. Scarab found the mummy and it even shows Dr. Scarab shooting at him and then them running out the door and then in one big oversized panel, kind of the big fight between the cops and the mummy and then uh, the mummy getting electrocuted there. And that looks really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, very, very similar, but very different too in in the same way. So, yeah. Merrick did an excellent job of uh, redrawing, you know, in a lot of ways, something that someone else had already drawn, but making it his own and in some ways making it better than the original. Yeah, I mean, literally, he took the last two or three pages of that Supernatural Thrillers number five and put that whole fight scene into one panel 
and half of the panel, or at least a third of the panel, is uh, Scarab's face telling this story. Mm-hmm. And then there's you know two caption boxes, and then a little bit of exposition at the bottom. And then there's it's it's hard to describe. It's almost like three different sections showing you know the mummy getting electrocuted or getting shot at and pulling the telephone pole out of the. Uh, and by the way, a telephone pole looks like it's as big as Godzilla. Um, yeah, out really. of the <laughs> out of the ground, and then getting electrocuted. Like I would love to know how he did that because it almost looks like he had just a black background, drew Scarab's face, and then erased these three sections and redrew these three. Like, how did he do that? I just would love to see that process. True. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I didn't I didn't think about that. But yeah, how how would he overlay the overlays on the overlay to to get that to come out the way it looks at least? Yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. But then, yeah, right back to, you know, present day here in Scarab telling uh, the guy here. I can't remember what his name is. I might have uh, not even said his name. Uh, huh. Maybe they don't have this guy a name because or unless I'm sorry, it says Dr. Carol Harter. And I saw Carol and was uh, assuming that was a lady, but uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be a lady. So maybe that's this guy here he's talking to. Could be the director of the museum, I believe. Yeah, he's there. Right. And of course, he doesn't want to believe any of this. And Scarab's like, listen, pal, I just lived all this, you know, a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I'm, read a newspaper. It happened. <laughs> yep. But I do like this. So now for you know, pretty much the rest of this comic, except for one little scene uh, with the, these uh, gangster guys, these these gang members, and then some cops, the rest of this comic is basically Gerber and Val Merrick showing you, you know, uh, with words, you know, and visually what it would be like to, you know, be awakened in a different time. And it's interesting because the mummy is wandering around looking at all these buildings like, what is going on here? Because he doesn't even know where he is. He thinks he's still probably in Egypt. And he thinks to himself, actually, and again, now here in this book, they're giving him more of a personality. Mm -hmm. He's got this inner monologue going and he thinks to himself, what land is this? The air is thick with the scent of burnt oil. And these lights that burn without fire, what are they? What do they mean? And he's looking at a traffic light. It's really, I found that really interesting that this is the road Gerber went down for the, basically the second issue of this, uh, this character. Right. Yeah. To, to get, get some of uh, Nkantu's perspective. What, what is he thinking? What is he seeing as far as his experience will, uh, will be able to define for him, you know, calling uh, the race of wizards that must have created these, uh, fireless lights and, and things like that. So yeah, you you could see that he 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 understands what he's seeing, but he doesn't understand how they exist because it must be magic compared to what he knows from when he was alive. Yeah, and I love how on the next page, then he's uh, walking through a park. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's Central Park, and he decides to just sit down on a bench. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's he's tired. Well. Well. You know, the the previous issue, he got so tired he collapsed. So I guess he remembers that he can be pushed that far. So he he doesn't want to 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 collapse out here. So he takes a seat on a bench. <laughs> yeah. And then again, this whole time he's thinking to himself, and he's like, you know, this isn't my homeland. And he's like, oh, my people, they must be freed and they must be joyous by now. Again, because he doesn't realize it's three thousand years since he was embalmed. Right. Yep. Yeah. Really, really good. And he goes, how much time has, you know, uh, passed since I fled Egypt? And he goes, years. I have slept for years. And he says, but how many years? How he goes enough for my native land to have changed so completely? Because, again, he doesn't know where he is at. So he said, I don't recognize anything. And again, he's uh, 
imagining in his head, thinking about like, you know, uh, the where his tribe lived, where it's like tall grass and all these animals and stuff like that. There's an elephant, there's a lion. And again, looks fantastic. Uh, yep. Great, great artwork by Val Merrick there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can see that the, the Gerber is is taking an opportunity to show um, just how far displaced he is. Right. Because we know in 73 what the, the, the world and I'm throwing up the big quote fingers, uh, what the world is like. And here we see what Nkantu thinks the world is like completely different perspectives. Uh, but to us and to him. This is the world, you know, that what we see and what he is imagining, because he hasn't seen these things yet, of course, but he doesn't yet know that they don't exist in this way. So as far as he knows, this is what his reality will be like, is is the the African plains. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's Kilimanjaro there in the background. I, oh, could be. I, yeah. You know, elephants, lions and whatnot. And then. You know, we saw earlier, uh, but we also know from reality the the tall buildings and the paved streets and the stoplights and things like that. That's the real world of 1973. Um, mm -hmm. Three thousand years would be what, like two two thousand BC or so, or no, one thousand BC, right? Yeah, one thousand yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that's a long, long time ago. And it's interesting as he's doing all this, you know, inner monologuing. All of a sudden, a woman's voice crying for help. So he said, well, perhaps this will be an opportunity to make an acquaintance with this native, with a native of this awesome land, one who will provide me with answers I seek. I only pray that I have strength. And he goes, to fend off whatever beast menaces. And he goes, no, I cannot believe it. Are they not Egyptians, but rather, and he sees these three guys harassing this woman. I don't know if they're going to mug her, rape her, what's going on here? And he, the one guy says to her, nice girls don't belong in Central Park after dark, foxy lady. <laughs> the other one says, because if they get out, they're not apt to be nice. No more. You dig. She don't answer. Maybe she didn't understand us. And then all of a sudden <laughs> she does speak and she says, behind you, look behind you. And the one guy says, oh, come on, chick. You spec us to fall for that. <laughs> yeah, that old trick. <laughs> and the one guy, hey, shorty. And they turn around and the mummy grabs the one guy by the neck. And just chucks them into the other three guys. And the mummy thinks to himself, these men, if such they may be called, are my color. This is my homeland then? Can they be Swareli? Can my people have become so savage? Or have all men become as bestial and depraved as these? And I thought, that's pretty good commentary there. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Yeah, just much. from watching that one scene. Yeah, that's, that's pretty astute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he says, I have frightened off the attackers, woman. Why is she running away from me? Why does she fear me? And it does look like it's a a monologue, not a speech bubble there. But I guess maybe he just kind of gestured to her. And then he says, I would call to her, but my throat so dry, so stiff. My voice would be no more than a croaking noise. So he, he just can't quite speak yet. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden he's looking at himself and he's like, oh, maybe they're scared because of all these bandages I have on. Let me take them <laughs> off. And then, wow, what about that scene there when he takes the bandages off his hand? Whoa. Yikes. Yeah. I, for, for the first time, I genuinely felt for the dude and what, what he must be going through when, when he took those bandages off. And simply because he saw his skin, he mm -hmm. came to the realization of what's going on. Yeah. The, the, the caption box says, but as Encantu does that, he gazes upon the cracked, withered, 
molted, blustered flesh beneath the strips of ancient cloth. A wave of sheer re uh, revulsion sweeps over him at the sickening realization that his entire body must look like that hand. And yeah, you can see he like goes to his knees and he starts kind of like pounding on the ground because he mm -hmm. realizes like it, this this is going to be his life now. He's not who he once was. Well, the the next the caption in the next box I think is the most telling. And the horrifying truth dawns upon him at last that he has not slept for mere weeks or months or even years, but for centuries. Mm -hmm. Centuries, it's repeated for emphasis. So he's he's coming to the realization that he is, like we have been told, thousands of years old. And so, you know, all of his musings about what things must be like just completely got thrown out the window. You know, if, if he's yeah. thinking in the thousands of years later, nothing should be the same. Now, of course, we know, looking back, that there are similarities between us and them. But for all he knows, no. Nobody that I was thinking about is going to be the same. My country won't be the Nothing is like I remember it that long ago. It can't be. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then <laughs> I love this next page where those uh, those guys, those uh, gang members, they all start running, blasting out of the park. And there's two random cops sitting in a cop car, see them come running. And a cop says, oh, boy, now what? And then they kind of say to him, like, dude, there's this crazy mummy running around and it says the officers are skeptical, skeptical, but they agree. And they get on their little radio and call back to the station. But then we just immediately jump back to the mummy here. And, of course, he hears the sirens and the screeching of brakes. And that's an interesting panel there at the bottom of that page where all this is going on. It almost looks like it's daylight, but I think it's just supposed to be all the police lights. And then I don't know if there's a chopper there or what, because there is one that's like really bright in the sky. I think that that one, like if you look on the, um, I don't know, the two two pages later. Oh, yeah. It's a fire the, truck. <laughs> yeah, it's a fire truck with a cherry picker basket with a couple police officers on it with rifles. But they have a huge spotlight strapped to the side of it. Now, this particular configuration, honestly, I have never seen anywhere. I've never seen that no. on TV or in a movie. or So... <laughs> I don't know if this is legit or not, but the fact that they had time to set that up is just <laughs> astounding. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get it. You know, it, it, the mummy's kind of like tough and he's not going to go down easy and bullets don't affect him. So you got to, you know, uh, present this uh, really big, uh, you know, barricade and all these guns and everything like to at least try to even slow him down. But yeah, the fire truck with the cherry picker is a bit much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like we, we need snipers, so we need to make our own building to put our snipers on. It's like, uh, okay, guys, yeah, you, you go. <laughs> but basically, they can't do squat against him. And it looks to me like in that last page on that top panel, it looks like he smashes the crap out of the uh, probably a cop car. And, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like blows up, but they just keep shooting away at him. And he just walks away, but he goes down this crazy alleyway, and uh, we're going to need to see what's going on here because he goes down this alley, and then the cops are like, he's down there. We've got him cornered. And they look down the alleyway, and he's gone. So, there's nothing there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's a pretty neat way to uh, end the book there. I think that's that's pretty cool. Oh, for sure, because, you know, what whatever has happened, he certainly hasn't shown any ability to, like, 
uh, be invisible or disappear or shrink or, you know, any of those things that would make him not be in this alley when the cops get here. So, yeah, obviously something pretty major went on for him now not to be where they can see him. Yeah, and it's not like he's that fast that he could, you know, get out of there. Right, right. Yeah, it's not the flash. He ducked in and ducked out before they even got there. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So, well, that's how, you know, the the living mummy here ended uh, for this issue. So overall, you know, really cool. You know, great character. Really like this character quite a bit. You know, and they're, you know, obviously they had to do a quick turnaround here for this one. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot, you know, they could do. And that's probably why they had, like we said, all those extra pages of, you know, just basically recapping recap that happened in the first one but pretty good right yeah oh yeah i I enjoyed it i i think it was a a really solid follow-up and and continuation of what we saw in that first issue yeah absolutely so all right well there was a little backup story uh in this uh in this one here because like we said it was only 15 pages you know so they were always doing you know more like 20 to 21 pages around this time but uh yeah, so this is pretty good. It's uh, it's one called He Came From Nowhere. And uh, I'm just going to assume since uh, this is from back in the day, Strange Tales 94 from March 1962, uh, most of the places think it's either Stan Lee or, you know, his brother, Larry Lieber, uh, plot wrote this one. But it was interesting that it's uh, Pencils and Inks by Joe Sinnott in this one. And, yeah, like I said to you offline there before we got started here, it, it seems very Ditko-esque to me, the story itself. And then even some of the artwork too, but, uh, not, not to be, it's, uh, it's our, uh, buddy Joe Sinnott. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely had a, a look, uh, visually different from what I assume is Joe Sinnott. And then like you said, yeah, the scripting or the plotting or whichever, you know, was very different from what I know of from Stan Lee. So he, he, or, or Larry Lieber, you know, whichever, however it went, um, if if it was Stan Lee, he went out of his way to give us something different than what we typically know of him as far as the Marvel age goes. Now, you know, we, we know that he was involved in writing, plotting, scripting before uh, the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. And at that time, this this horror or intense kind of writing was the you know was the big thing so stanley certainly had experience with it but since um what was fantastic for one like in 1960 61 i think it's 61 61 okay so since from then up to now you know we know stanley is the superhero writer I, i think to a large extent you know we may have and and i'll admit that that i had forgotten that that's not the only thing that Stanley could do. I mean, and, and superheroes and horror isn't either. I mean, he wrote romance and he wrote Westerns and, you know, he did, well, he did everything that needed to be done, but, but up until now, this kind of writing is not something that we've seen that much or really expected from Stanley or or at at least for, from my perspective of, of reading Marvel books. Yeah. This is, it's a, it's an interesting little story. So we, (laughs) we see this guy, Joe Morgan, escapes from prison and i love how he escapes right out of prison and he doesn't even look like he's in a prison uniform he looks like he's in you know regular civvies and he already has a pistol too <laughs> yeah right yeah he, he was ready he had it all there, there was probably a package waiting for him outside the prison somewhere and he 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 went and grabbed that up and 
for for those of you that recognize the name Joe Morgan, you're absolutely right. <laughs> for years, he was second baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're you're right. He he, yeah, had, he had a downturn here, you know, a little bit later in life, and and was in prison, and and this is his story after he escaped. It's a pretty close likeness here too. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I love this second page here where he's uh, uh, monologuing to himself. There's a couple of hobos with some grub. They'll probably give me some, but why should I settle for some when I can have all of it? So again, he just gets out of prison and his first thought isn't, you know, I'm just going to stay, you know, hang low and try to stay out of sight. No, I'm going to shoot two hobos that are like a mile outside of a prison just for food. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be the kind of wiener that I was that sent me to prison to begin with. Probably that's, you know, so yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So so he's going to do that. But then all of a sudden, hey, what's that? And there's this bright light in the sky. And all of a sudden it opens up like almost like a door. And he goes, it's some kind of bright light. It's getting brighter. And he's like, I can't even look at it. And then all of a sudden he says, it's dimming now, but it's changing into a, a man. And we see this dude that's like, you know, in like a, you know, a, a suit and tie. And he looks like he's even got a. uh uh, handkerchief there. This guy's really dressed up and he just appears out of nowhere. And a guy, Joe Morgan says, what is it? Some kind of gag, a trick, things like this can't happen. They just can't. And this guy says, oh, but they can happen. Not often, I admit, but nevertheless, they do happen. And he goes, you're talking, then you're real. I ain't just seeing things. Who are you? Where are you from? And he says, my name is Groff. I come from the future. And I'm thinking to myself, kind of my name is Groff, but I thought, okay, it's the future, but it's going to come into play, right? Did, did you not get any Rod Serling uh, oh, Twilight sure. Zone kind of feel from the, those <laughs> panels and every? I'm like, oh, OK. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So he pulls the gun on this guy and says the future, but the future ain't happened yet, <laughs> which made me laugh. And he goes, how did you get here from there? And he, this guy says the ring has fantastic powers by merely rubbing it. A person leaves one segment of time and enters another. And he has his hand up in the air like, hey, look at this ring I have on. And the guy says, "Don't many say, this doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. Yet I saw it happen. And then he thinks to himself, wait a minute. If this joker came into the present, I can go into the future. Then the cops could never catch me and send me back to stir. But first, I better check up on a couple of things. So he says, look, tell me something about the future. What's it like? And this is fantastic. The guy says, it's a wonderful place. Science has made everything perfect. Even the weather is scientifically controlled more than enough. He goes and work. What kind of jobs are there? And he says, nobody has to work. All the work is done by machinery. You might also be interested in knowing that the population is arranged (laughs) so that there is one beautiful woman for every man. (laughs) Well, it's everything you could want. Uh, Perfect weather, uh, more than enough food. You don't have to work because the, the robots do it. And there's a female for every guy and she's attractive. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And the guy says that does it. And he goes, have any other questions? And he goes, no pal, no questions, but I got a request. You fork over that magic ring. Come on, give it to me or I'll give you something out of this gun. And the guy says, there's no need to shoot. I will gladly give you the ring. I have no further use from it. Thanks chum. Now I got to do is rub it. Huh? He rubs the ring and starts disappearing. And he says, Hey, it's already working. I'm starting to disappear. And then all of a sudden he says, Say, wait a minute, if the future is as good as you say, then why did you leave there? Well, he thought about that too late. So mm-hmm. <laughs> he ends up in the future and we see these 
alien type figures in these uniforms. And Joe says, who, what are you? Why do you call me Groff? My name is Joe Morgan. And they say, Groff sees him. And he goes, the alien, you lie. We know you are Groff, the escaped convict. You transformed yourself into another creature just so you, just as any of us can do. But your disguise doesn't fool us. And so Joe escaped one prison to go to another prison, right? <laughs> yep, definite Twilight Zone vibes, man. Definite. It's great in that very last page. I love that shot of him in a prison with these crazy-looking aliens. How about that one? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and, and the, the aliens are all very distinctive and very different, too. I, I like that. Yeah, one of them's kind of reptilian. Another one looks like almost like something you'd find underwater. And then I'm not sure what to think of that other guy with his uh, red shirt on there and his arms folded. <laughs> yep. But yeah, that's it. And then we see uh, the guy that Groff that came to Earth and he says, before I go out among the humans, I shall take one last look at my true form. And he goes over to the water and looks himself in the water. And he's one of those alien people. And he says he's from the planet Uranus. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So that's that's where the future lies is uh, on uh, Uranus. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so everybody get ready. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. So, yeah, that's fantastic. I thought that was a neat little story just to, you know, a reprint to throw in there at the end. I love it. Very good. Yeah, very fun. Similar, but different enough that, yeah, it, it worked, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Well, that's going to wrap us up here. Um, uh, so the plan is, you know, we're going to, you know, run through the rest of these, which is going to take, a, you know, a few episodes here if we do a couple at a time. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to this. These are a lot of fun. I haven't read the rest of these in a long, long time. I want to say at least three or four years that I haven't read, maybe more, uh, the rest of this run. So I'm looking forward to it. Cool beans. Yeah, I, you, you're one up on me. I haven't read these in probably... 20 25 years wow yeah oh yeah yeah it's it's been and and just most of my reading for for the past quite a while has been superheroes i read a lot of stuff uh earlier in my my collecting time but the shift has just been to superhero stuff and i haven't gone back to revisit a lot of the uh original stuff or earlier stuff that i i read in my collecting days so yeah it's it's been a while but i i after reading these two issues, I, I'm, I'm caught between wanting to go in there and read the rest of these before I go to sleep tonight or spreading them out and reading just a couple so that they're very fresh uh, for the next time that we talk about. I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle it yet, but I definitely look forward to reading. them. Yeah, and then I forgot to. I did get all of these issues uh, just because I was at one point I realized I was pretty close to getting them all mm. and then I was able to get five which was the most expensive one out of the whole uh, uh, right. lot, obviously, because of the mummy. But uh, yeah, I was able to you know, close this run out, and I have all the singles. But I totally forgot. I think I also have it. I think they reprinted these in one of the uh, the black and white. Uh, oh, what does Marvel call their black and white reprint? Uh, not Showcase. That's DC. Um, Essentials. Yes. Essentials. Yeah, I think Marvel Horror Essential. I think it's volume two reprinted. Uh, all the rest of these, like maybe seven through 15, because I think maybe five might have been in the first one. But I might check them out that way as well, just to see the difference between the black and white and the color. Because like you said, Val Merrick's art, uh, I did see a lot of his stuff, uh, black and white, and it was really, really good stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, that that makes me want to find it and, and read it in black and white, too. 
Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Then I'll even uh, maybe can send you a few uh, pics to let you check it out and see how cool it is. But uh, all right, man. Well, that's going to wrap us up here for this one. So uh, if anybody's looking for you out there to find you and what you have going on, where can they do so? Um, Teal Productions on Twitter uh, is probably going to be the, the best place to find me. And uh, that's probably where I'm going to be until Twitter explodes, uh, you know, <laughs> given what everybody seems to think about Twitter lately. Um, Teal Productions, T-E-A-L, is where you can find me. Uh, any other podcasts that, that I do myself or that I guest on or even just shows that I like and I, I think other people should give them a listen, I'll retweet on there. And so you can you, you, you get a good view of my headspace by watching Teal Productions on Twitter. It, it pretty much is a reflection of where I'm at any given day. Yep. Like you said, all your shows, you uh, funnel them all out through there, which is really cool. And I've actually, you know, been digging uh, lately. I've been diving right into the last few uh, episodes of Superman Super Show to catch up with those. Those cool. are really fun. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's a that's the uh, the Golden Age Superman uh, that Stephen Orr and I read and talk about, starting all the way back at Action Number One, his first appearance. And so we're, I don't know, about twenty twenty five action issues in, and about like three or maybe we're coming up on issue four of the actual Superman title uh, still though, that, that even all that puts us still in like 1940, I think we're still at. So it's, it's definitely right in the heart of the golden age kind of stuff. And that's, that's what makes it so much fun. We, we both have read contemporary Superman. Uh, as a matter of fact, Stephen is even doing another show where he's talking about the death of Superman uh, mm. as it was coming out uh, because it, it was coming out 30 years ago, like this time. So he's doing it like week for week, every uh, whatever the corresponding week is. He talks about those books 30 years ago that came out for that. So um, he's doing that. And but both of us, we, we know the, the contemporary Superman and thinking about and comparing it to those things going on in, in the golden age. Uh, that's what we have the most fun with is, is just seeing how things have changed and talking about it and everything like that. That that show has been a lot of fun. Golden Age books are are just a hoot. Um, <laughs> you mentioned shows that I do, Billy. Um, I, I do one about um, Dr. Fate. Mm-hmm. And the first, oh, I don't know, 100 episodes that I did of that show, maybe, maybe not that many. I, I forget how many, but I started at Dr. Fate's beginning. And so the first chunk of that show was all golden age stuff and Mm -hmm. golden age specter just like superman just (laughs) like batman just like flash hawkman you know it is it is just something to behold and uh, for those real fans of of comic books that just like the medium of of comic books you've got to read golden age stuff because it is so much fun and so not like (laughs) what you see in your comic book shop today if you went Mm, yeah (laughs) you guys even made mention in one of the more recent superman super shows of some of the crazy insane things superman has done like hung on ledges to like uh spy on people (laughs) yeah yeah we've got a running count of because he i don't know but at that time they're thinking well you know he's not gonna go up and stand on a ledge and listen he's gonna jump up as close as he can get and just hang and look in the windows and listen and stuff. Like that. And so that's what he does. And yeah, we've been keeping a running tally of how many times he <laughs> hangs from a ledge in a story. It's fantastic. But you know what? I, I'll admit for quite a long time, I did not realize 
that Superman couldn't fly from the get-go. You know, younger readers, listeners to podcasts, stuff like that, maybe people that haven't gone back and only started reading in the last 20 or 30 years, you, you might not know that, you know, hey, for a while there, Superman was not flying in the beginning. He was just leaping tall buildings with a single bound. That's and, all he was doing. He couldn't fly yet. So it right. does make no, sense, right? Yeah, he, he would go up and he would have to come down because he didn't fly. So, yeah, that was uh, we we the, and there's there's several ways. My, my favorite way is if you see it drawn, it always looks like he's running in the air. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's something that now Dr. Fate did that, but he can fly. But that always got me is I can just imagine this person moving through the sky up above buildings, looking like they're running, you know, and, and I would be like, oh, man, something is going on you know, way <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. So, but, yeah, definitely people need to get out there and listen to those shows, man. They're a lot of fun again, because starting in the golden age and moving forward, it, there's there's really going to be. A huge contrast, you know, mm -hmm. like you said, even once you get out of the golden age and start moving into the silver age, like once Superman starts to fly and 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 realize some of these other powers like heat vision and stuff like that, it really is a big contrast uh, from where he is now and where he was then. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of fun, too. A lot of fun. Yep, absolutely. So, all right, well, I'm going to let you go, man. And again, thanks for uh, being on. And like I said, we're going to knock these guys out, uh, Supernatural Thrillers, and then uh, I'm sure we'll talk off mic here and then uh, maybe we'll uh, get some magazines in here as well. All righty, man. I look, I look forward to it, Billy. Thanks a lot. All right. I'm going to step out here quick to uh, take a little break and then come back to wrap up the show. Trying to teach me a lesson in patience, Sir Joseph. <laughs> Method is everything in archaeology, my boy. We always deal with our finds of the day in order. Well, it seems to me that that box we dug up today with the uh, very peculiar gentleman over there is the only find we've made in the past two months that'll bring this expedition any medals from the British Museum. We didn't come to dig in Egypt for medals. Much more is learned from studying bits of broken pottery than from all the sensational finds. Our job is to increase the sum of human knowledge of the past. Not to satisfy our own curiosity. Well, that's all very true, Sir Joseph, but, but after all, we're human. And a find like this, well, how can you wait? This is your first trip. I've been out here ten years, and I'm more curious about that mummy than you are. And even more about that box. Wimple. Yeah? The viscera were not removed. The usual scar made by the embalmer's knife is not there. I guessed as much, Miller. I had a good look at him when I photographed him. Never saw a mummy like that. Neither I imagine as anyone else. Looks as though he died in some sensationally unpleasant manner. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Ed for being on. Uh, really enjoy having Ed on. We talk, you know, zany, haney, horror comics and... You know, we, you know, mentioned some uh, maybe black and white magazines. Maybe we'll jump into at some point, you know, if uh, he doesn't uh, maybe even start up a show of his own about them. So, uh, you know, look forward to more from him in the future and definitely check out uh, him on Twitter. And he funnels all his stuff through there. Like, you know, he said Lords of Order, which is a Dr. Fate podcast and Superman Super Show he does with Steven. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff going on. So definitely uh, check out his uh, Twitter feed for everything that he has going on and uh, give a listen. All right. Take care.